This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Hey guys, welcome to the Hero Academy podcast, the place where you can celebrate and highlight our frontline heroes, people such as nurses, firemen, EMS, police officers, and military are all heroes without capes. I don't care about politics, only positivity and purpose. I only care about those that have chosen to serve our society. I believe in collaboration over competition. Here, you'll learn the secrets and strategies that let ordinary people become extraordinary inside of their purpose. Sometimes we'll throw in some simple side hustles that everyday regular people are doing, things that you could do to make some extra money, especially if you're starting to think about retirement and what's next. Inside this podcast each week, you'll learn from people like you that were working full time, but still found the time to create a course, grow a big team, create a coaching program, a large audience, or a profitable side hustle. The steps they took, their backstories, and how they overcame their burnout that they were facing. The perfect blend of mindset and techniques. Carpe diem. Now let's get your dream lit for your freedom. I'm your host and coach, Super Dave. Let's go. Welcome to this week's episode of the Hero Academy podcast. I am very excited to have my friend Gene, PhD. Do you like when people call you doctor? No, I hate it. It makes me cringe. (laughs) you are definitely top four top five most interesting human beings that i've had on the podcast i i mean that sincerely thank Uh, you no no zero platitudes when i say that but uh before i hit record i was telling you about my son and his dream and my youngest son my baby boy uh 23 years old wants to fight in the ufc and um my biggest concern is is definitely injury concussions. Um, I don't want his brain chemistry to change. You know, he's a sweet, sweet kid. He's patient. He's uh, he's nice. And when he first told me this, I'm like, "You're not a killer." I'm like, "You want to be?" <laughs> and, and I also said, "And also said, you didn't have a rough life." Like when I imagine a fighter, you know, he had a, he had a really good life. I gave him a solid. You know, our career for provides for a very stable. If, if you're not a drunk, right? If you're not a drunk sure, sure. and you're not a drug addict, it provides for a very stable life for your families, right? I worked a lot of overtime. You know, I crushed it when I was in uniform. I worked a lot. Um, but I was always there for all of their sporting events. Um, you know, I would always, I had great bosses that would let me cut out an hour earlier too because they always said family first. And I, I honestly say to this day, I had, 90% of my bosses were great boss. You're a sergeant, right? Yeah, 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 sergeant. I was just going to say, like, family first. I've heard people say that and then not carry it out on the other end. So if yep. you have people that actually said family first and then let you go to those events, yep. that's great. That's actual leadership. That's Yeah, awesome. you go up and you say, hey, boss, my son is wrestling. Well, my son, had, you know, he's in a tournament. Is it all right if I leave an hour early today? And 99% of the time, I never had an issue from any of my boys. Even even this uh, one guy who was like an old school hard ass was like, yeah, no problem. And he was like one of the worst bosses I ever had. <laughs> so, so you also have to know which ones to ask, right? You have to know like 
you have to say you can't ask every week um, unless it's a season, right? Like sometimes there's a wrestling season and it's the next two months. And I would say, hey, boss, for the next two months, you know, on Fridays, I need to leave, you know, every other week I need to leave early, something like that. And they usually don't have a problem with that. Yeah. But, and just to that, just to like take like, let's say you are asking every week. Right. But I like I don't know you that well, but I know you well enough to know that you're going to be making deposits into that bank leading up to that. So you're not just going to keep like taking and taking and taking right. like, no, you're probably a rock star cop who does right. a lot of awesome things so that when you go to ask for this, it, it's not even a big deal. It's like, well, you know, he's been killing it out there. Like, yeah, I'll give him this hour or whatever. It's a no big deal. But if you're yeah. just a slum and you never do anything and then you're asking for these things, you're almost like, no, no, you're not getting that. So, um, back to my son he uh that's his dream to fight in the ufc and i and i tell everyone that will listen that i don't i i support him in his dream but and and everyone else i talk to he'll, he'll probably he doesn't listen to the podcast but his girlfriend does from time to time so she might pass on the word but i don't want that for him what i wanted for him was for him to become a police officer because i feel like he has the right temperament for it um, I was just telling his girlfriend's mom that he's calm, he's patient, he's physically fit, like he, you know, he looks like a beast. He's 23 years old, right? He's mm -hmm. jacked, uh, one set, five, five, seven and a half, five, eight at 170, muscle, all muscle, you know, thick, thick legs and big shoulders. And he looks, he looks great. And I know that he would be fair and empathetic with people and he had, he had a great childhood. You know, my kids will be the first to tell you that I was a good dad because my dad wasn't around. Right. So I strived extra hard to be a good dad and I poured on the love and uh, yes, I was disciplinarian and kind of strict with some things, but my uh, biggest concern was when they went to high school and pills because that's when pills started getting popular. Yep. So it's just like, please don't ever do pills. And now, and a lot of the heroin addicts that used to be athletes, they started with pills, pain pills. You're in a, you're in PA, right? Uh, Delaware. Oh, Delaware. Okay. Yeah. Yep. What's the big, um, how many years you got on total? So total in policing is about 15 and then 13 here in Delaware. 13 in Delaware. Yeah. What's the big drug issue? Because I know it's all across the country. Yeah. I mean, listen, Delaware has always been heroin. Like, honestly, like since the time I've been there, I never really saw a big cocaine crack. Like, I kind of missed that whole generation. The entire time I've been involved in policing, it's been heroin mm. for the lower income areas. And then, you know, like you're like in northern Delaware, like the higher income areas, you definitely have like pills and stuff like that. But yeah. Dude, listen, I, I can't tell you the amount of athletes that I know that had an injury, yes. got hooked on pills, yes. couldn't afford the pills anymore, and then went to heroin. It's like now it's just like a tale as old as time. I mean, I know. And that's that was my right? biggest fear with him getting any injuries. I always told him, like, please be careful of the pain pills because it's they're so addictive. And the doctors will give you a hundred hundred opioids at a at a clip. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, dude, no I problem. had like a I had a very minor surgery when I was 15 years old. Uh and they prescribed me Percocet and my mom's a nurse and she yoked those away from me like immediately. 
not because she thought that like I would abuse them, but why would you even take the risk? I didn't need them. I really didn't. I just need some extra strength Tylenol and I was fine. But as a 15 year old kid, like that's how that starts. Yeah. I love that. Your mom was a nurse. What'd your dad do? Uh, he's a school teacher. So he's a gym teacher. So no law enforcement in your family. So I have a cousin who works for the prosecutor's office in Cape May County, New Jersey. He, he actually kind of, he was the only guy in my family, but honestly they lived kind of far away. So we never really talked to them that much, but no, I was kind of the outcast, if you will. Like my sister's a teacher, my dad's a teacher, my mom's a nurse. And uh, I just wanted to do something different, really. I mean, now the cops that I knew, like from a local around where I lived, they were athletes, man. They were like jacked athletes. And I always loved working out. And they always seem to be like doing well for themselves. You know what I mean? Like making decent money. Right. Uh, heard them talk about the pension, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, I think that's for me. I think that's what I want to do. How old were you when you made that decision? Dude, I was uh, 16. I was 16 when I really made that decision. I went for a ride along with a local chief of police and I was hooked immediately. Now, the cool thing about Jersey is they have these seasonal police officer positions. So I was a class two officer down in Wildwood, New Jersey. I did that for two summers. The greatest two summers of my life, even now looking back as far as policing goes. And uh, yeah, I was 18 years old when I went through my first uh, police academy in Jersey. You ever worked at um, convention center in Wildwood? Yeah, we used to like hop around there from time to time, but I worked uh, the boardwalk my first summer. So that was, let me think, let me think. That Oh, that was 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. That was my shift. And then the second summer I worked what's called like the bar district. Yeah. And that was 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. And I loved okay. it. Oh okay. my God. It was. Yeah. It was when you're a young man. When you're a young man working those hours, they're like the greatest thing in the world. (laughs) Yep. Yep. I can remember like, cause the boardwalk would shut down. Let's say it was shut down at 10 o'clock at night. Well, from 10 to two, we would just be, we would leave the boardwalk. Basically we weren't supposed to, but we would. And then we would just go patrol like those other streets on foot. And we would get into so much shit just as 18, 19 year old kids. And it was like the wild, wild west. I mean, and looking back on it, my supervisor really was a guy who was just like one year ahead of me. Mm. It wasn't even a sergeant or a corporal. There was a corporal who was in charge of all of us, but there was like 35 of us. There was no way you were going to keep track of all of us on one night. So it was 35 under one supervisor. Yeah, there was like an entire. So that whole night, there would just be a bunch of us class twos out there all over the place. And we would have like a briefing. And the corporal would be basically tell us like, hey, don't get in trouble. Don't do anything <laughs> stupid. <laughs> and we didn't like, you know, we were responsible. But uh, looking back on those days, it's like, man. Number one, a- good, thing, good thing we didn't have body cameras, like that kind of stuff. But, but there could have been an element of disaster, like just yeah. easily, 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 easily. But I mean, we we did our job and, you know, we had a good time. Were you carrying like full-fledged police officers yeah. or peace officers? No, full-fledged. We had uh, we carried a forty-five. I mean, it, it was funny. The only caveat was we couldn't take the gun home. Okay. So we had to put it in our locker at the end of the night and then go be regular people. And then we would come back and check it out of our locker. That's pretty cool. And yeah. then um, 
what did you do after that? What was the next step in your career? Next so then I was totally hooked, right? I was like, this, okay, law enforcement, 100% for me. I was in college and my mom and both my dad, they really were stressing me like, hey, we really want you to finish college. And I was in my second year of college, I think. And I was, I just applied to every state police organization, like on the entire East Coast. And uh, Maryland State Police picked me up. So then I went to Maryland State Police, went through their academy, which was phenomenal, made a lot of great relationships there and stayed there for two years. Uh, I was stationed down in Salisbury. Again, another great experience, like Maryland State Police, super squared away, um, had a lot of great supervisors there. A lot of the lessons, a lot of the like my leadership style now is based off those early days from those guys because it's different from where I'm at now. So especially down in Salisbury, it was at the time, it was the busiest barrack in the state. And you were kind of like a one-man show. I mean, your backup was not coming anytime soon. So you had to, as a 21-year-old man at the time, I say man, like jokingly, I was still a kid. Right. Uh, you know, you had to be very confident in your abilities, but I had great supervisors. So then I actually went up leaving Maryland State Police. I met my wife who... We live in New Jersey now, and that was just a, a, a family decision, to be honest with you. Like, we knew we wanted to start having kids. She's from New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey. Our families are from here. So I found out about Newcastle County Police, where I'm at now, and nothing against New Jersey. But I really, at the time, they were switching their pensions over to this 30-year pension thing, and that didn't really sound too appealing to me. So I found Newcastle County Police, where you can live wherever you want. It's a really good sized department, about 415 sworn officer strength. Yeah. And uh, kind of been there ever since for the last 13 years. I wasn't going to ask what agency you work for, but I guess you, uh, you've you been on so many podcasts now. Yeah. It's it's out there. It doesn't really it's, matter. It's free pub publicity for them and they like it. So Yeah. And a lot of departments are having a hard time recruiting. So you being on podcasts and talking about your department being a great department. I work for a really great department, too, uh, on Long Island, which I won't name. But most people know that to work on Long Island, it's a, you know, it's all they're all great. All of them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so your parents both being educators, they stressed education because mm -hmm. you're kind of an anomaly. Not many people go on to the level that you've gone on to. Yeah, that's because oh, I'm a that's because I'm a psycho. But yeah. <laughs> so so you get your associates and then you get your bachelor's, or you went straight for the bachelor's. So I had my associates. So you have to have your associates to get hired by where I'm at now with the county police. But I didn't go back to school uh, for about five years into my career. So I I did a few years on the road. And then I went into detectives. So I spent seven years in our detective division, did everything from property to major crimes to homicide, did all those things. Wow. Well, I was like a couple, no, I think I was, yeah, I was about three years into detectives and I had not been promoted to sergeant yet. And I had somebody come to me within the department. And they basically just said like, hey, you seem very squared away. However, you're missing like a big part of this thing, dude. Like you got to go back to school because- you're never going to move up here. Uh, call it what you want, but it's just, it is what it is, unless you get educated. So I then started talking to a couple people. Even that didn't really push me over the edge. 
And then that chief of police that I did the ride along with when I was 16, he was still the chief of police at this time. I'm about 25, 26 years old. So then I had a conversation with him and he basically said the same thing. He was like, yeah, Gene, listen, like if you really want to become in these leadership positions, you're going to have to go get educated. So I took that as, all right, well, what's the highest level of possible education you can get, which is a PhD. So I basically, I went from having an associate's degree to a PhD in about eight years it took me. So I just went straight through. I got a bachelor's degree. Yeah. Then got my master's in education and then uh, did the PhD. So it's, I kind of just finished up about a year and a half ago. Oh my God. So with your master's and with the PhD, you can teach pretty much anywhere in the country. Yeah. So that is uh, one of the things about education that you always have that element of you can teach and you have the real life experience of being an investigator for you said seven years yeah so i was yep i was a detective for seven years yeah and now and i've been in uh as an investigator as a supervisor because now i'm in internal affairs i know everybody hates me in internal affairs not really but uh i've been there for three years so really it's it's 10 years of actual like investigations have you met marlon marachi i think that's how you say his last name um i had him on the podcast he's from la and uh I'll link you guys together. Yeah, he's very passionate about it. Um, and that's all he talks about is his IA. And I had him on the show, but um, I'll definitely link you guys together. Um, you need the right people in IA. You definitely need the right people. Because- yeah, I'll tell you what, like when I first got the phone call, so I got a phone call about three years ago. I had been a sergeant for a couple years. And the phone call was, ba- it came from a major at the time. And they were basically like, hey, would you be interested in going into internal affairs? And I said, no. <laughs> Everyone says no. Everyone says no at first. Yep. And uh, then they were like, would you be interested in going into internal affairs? I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I see what kind of phone conversation this is. Uh, so I accepted it. And it's not what I thought it was going to be. Like, I've had a great time in there. And... Uh, all the trainings that I've had a chance to go to, all the Four Science Institute, all the human factors training, all that kind of stuff, dude, it's it's totally taking me on a 180 as far as how I look at rapidly evolving situations that police officers get put in. And I love it. I really do. And also, like, I make a point. We're a decent-sized department. Like I said, we got about 400 officers. I really make it a point to not, like, be a politician, but I try to spend as little time in the office as I can. And I'm out and about, dude. I'm high-fiving people, shaking hands, kissing babies, trying to talk to people, like, as much as I can. Uh, I do jujitsu with guys, like, outside of work, like, all that kind of stuff. Just so that when the time comes and I got to call you in for an investigation, like, you're it's human. not this big, awkward thing. You know what I mean? Right. right. You're a human. Yes. Doing doing human being things. Being You're being a human. <laughs> Instead of a, instead of a robot who works in an ivory castle and no one ever sees him until uh, the the Grand Wizard opens the curtain, <laughs> like yeah. oh my god! And our gonna... and our building and our building is set up that way. So uh, our our building it's uh, three stories. So if you go up the elevator to the third floor, you get off the elevator to the right uh, behind like this glass one way. You can only see out. You can't see in. 
that's where internal affairs in. It's like this, you know, the only reason you would ever go there is if you're in trouble. You know what yeah. I mean? So yeah, you're, you're totally nailed it. I uh, only had two internal affairs investigations. One was for myself. I, I mean, complaints I've had maybe a handful, half, uh, definitely not two hands, two hands, but definitely I've had, I, I like to say less than 10 complaints and um, where I actually got called in, it was for someone else's investigation where I was the lead detective on the case. And I, I had the um, arrest room directly across from me. So they were like, you had eyes on the room the entire time. I said, yes, sir. The entire time I had eyes on the room. And I can, I can say with a hundred percent certainty that no one went into that room. And, 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 and then I also asked at the end of the interview, I said, well, who is he accusing of hitting him? <laughs> and he said a white, a white male with a crow, uh, like a short cropped hair. And I was like, shoot, that's not me. All right, not me. <laughs> I'm like, all right, that eliminates me. Okay, good. All right, good. So I can relax now. So, um, yeah, very was- early on, very early on in my career with the county, I got called into internal affairs. I wound up getting disciplined, actually. It wasn't anything crazy, but I had a good experience. I know that sounds crazy, but. I remember going in there. I was scared to death because I had I was about six months off FTO, maybe a year off, yeah. off field training, getting called in internal affairs. And I wound up getting disciplined. It was nothing crazy. I think it was a written reprimand at the time. But again, great experience. They treated me with respect. And I was totally in the wrong. I was and I was honest about it. And that was it. And that, like they never held it against me. It was just one of those things where, hey, he's a young kid. He made a mistake. We dealt with it. He got some retraining, but I never forgot that. I never forgot how I felt going into internal affairs. Like I was terrified. So now I still think about that today. Like I make sure when officers come in, number one, I always make sure I'm in a shirt and tie. I make sure I look good. I'm looking presentable. And I make sure to like have a conversation with them and kind of bullshit with them before they come in, you know, just kind of lower that. Yeah, that's uh, that's how it was when my last interview was the one I was referencing, uh, they definitely, I, I knew that I had done nothing wrong. So I, I went into that one, not scared at all, not worried. I'm like, okay, I, I'm not really worried about this, but the number one rule across the country is do not lie to internal affairs. Yeah. That is the number one rule that I want a- anyone that's listening to this. And I, and I know you concur. Do not tell a lie. It's, 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 it's worse than lying on the stand. It is. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only thing I can't help you out with. If you come in and lie, it's just, you know, and, and especially I can't talk for all the other internal affairs investigators, but you know, we're not trying to play like a gotcha game. It's not, we're very open. And in Delaware, so Delaware has a very robust officer's bill of rights. I mean, the officers rightfully so have a lot of rights. So, um, yeah, we're, when we call them in for an interview, it's very direct and to the point. I'm not trying to figure out your deepest, darkest secrets. And uh, yeah, you just tell the truth. And luckily in my, listen, in my three years, we've never had, never had that problem. Um, what was your favorite unit that you worked in or a favorite capacity? Homicide, for sure. Homicide. Yeah, I got to work with a lot of really great investigators. Um, we kind of had this crew, there was about four to six of us that kind of came into detectives around the same time 
And then we kind of kept moving up to these different units altogether. So by the time we got to homicide together, we all knew each other very well. And I definitely was not the best investigator. Like those guys were definitely better than me, but I got to learn so much from them. I got to work a lot of just awesome cases. Um, yeah. And I went through a couple actual full blown homicide trials, which very stressful, but man, I learned so much, you know, the, the, the trial process, especially if you're dealing with a homicide, the last homicide trial I had, it was a, um, 15 year old female that had been murdered and then another gentleman. And man, the pressure that I felt during that to make sure that this guy gets convicted. And that was really stressful. And I learned so much about that process. And I think that's why I'm able to talk about investigations through this lens of like, dude, I've been there. I've made the mistakes, uh, been through the trials. I, listen, I've been up on the stand before and been made to look like a complete idiot. And, and, and the, when that happens, it feels terrible, but it's like the best thing that could ever happen to you. Hopefully because, not during a homicide, hopefully not during a homicide trial where right. it ruins the case, Right. but you need those things to happen. Defense attorneys will actually open your department's rules and procedures. And if you didn't do X, when your rules and procedures say you're supposed to execute it this way, they will bring that out. And you better have a good excuse for why you deviated from the rules and procedures. What's uh, what's your department's, is that what it's called, rules and procedures, or do they have a different name for it? Uh, we just have like um, directives. We just call it directives. Directives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they will bring out, they, they have access to those and they will bring them out and they say, you know, your directive says that you're supposed to do this first. Is there a reason why you did not do this first? Please explain to us, officer. <laughs> oh, you know, it's funny. It's funny you just said that. So a buddy of mine, he's now with the FBI. He left. But when we were young officers coming up, he had, I think it was a robbery case. And he asked me to do a photo lineup for him for that case. Now, he did what he was supposed to do because I had no involvement in that case. So that's how that's how our policies and directives mandate that whoever Line. does. Yeah. Yep. Whoever does the photo lineup can have no knowledge about the case whatsoever right so i go and do this photo lineup and i did it like in our lobby you're supposed to do it in an interview room you're supposed to record it all this stuff well i didn't know that because i was a young officer so i just did it in the lobby now that was recorded but uh the guy positively id'd him so they got some other evidence and they wound up arresting the guy well this goes to trial so the defense attorney calls me up on the stand and does exactly what you just said right so she says um, is there a, like, why is it in your policy that this should be recorded when you do this? And my answer was, well, so people can't lie about it and they can't just make something up. So it's recorded. And her rebuttal was, well, did you record it? And I was like, no, I didn't. <laughs> but it just started down that rabbit hole of, yep. well, what's he hiding? Is he hiding something? Why didn't he do it? So, Their number one job is to make the investigator look bad. Yes. But I can tell you this, I never didn't record a photo lineup after that. I learned yeah, from that experience and made the best of it. You learn from mistakes. Mm -hmm. I, um, I told you when we last spoke that I would love to just ride around your, your district, your area with you. And we still may make that happen because you're not very far from me. Yeah. So uh, 
that's that's just my dream of like where I'm going to take the podcast and um I don't mind saying it because if you ever listen to my intro I don't mind uh I, I don't really believe in competition no one else can be my voice no one else can have my backstory and you have an amazing story to uh be so young and ex- so much experience so many different units like you have a wealth of knowledge and I'm really glad that you're continuing to teach. We we last spoke about you going and speaking at conferences. How did you decide to start speaking? Like, where did that decision came, come from? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I actually went to, so there's this nonprofit that a buddy of mine runs. It's called Consequences of Habit. Uh, his name is J.T. Frank. He's a, a U.S. Air Marshal. So he's had this nonprofit for a while, right? Many years. So he put on this like speaker event. Well, at the speaker event, there's this guy, his name's Nick Lavery. Nick Lavery is a Green Beret who's larger than life. He's like six foot six, 280 pounds. He's actually missing one of his legs. His legs, his, one of his legs got uh, blown off in combat, but he's still an active Green Beret. Anyway, this guy goes up and starts speaking. And this is back in October, September, October of last year. And basically his speech is motivational. It's like, what are you doing with your life? All that kind of stuff. And, but it really touched me. Like I really felt like he was speaking to me. So I've always, listen, I've, I've actually always enjoyed public speaking. I think it came from being a detective and interviewing people. And just when you interview people, especially for violent crimes, you got to be pretty good at just being working off the cuff and just talking and getting to know people and yes. all that kind of stuff. And I really enjoyed that. And then I had been promoted to sergeant, and I had always thought to myself, like, I bet I could do this. I bet I could talk to people and 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 learn, you know, get these leadership lessons that lessons out to people. But I had this little thing in the back of my mind that was like, well, you're just like a little peon, like you're just a sergeant, and maybe when you're a lieutenant or a captain, maybe then you can start thinking about doing that. So then I hear Nick Lavery talking about this, and that was just the trigger that I needed. So then I started my own company. I started Reed Training Solutions and just kind of propelled from there and just said, you know what, listen, okay, I'm only a sergeant. All right, whatever. I got 10 years of investigative experience. I have a PhD. I've written a book about emotional intelligence. Like I know I'd say, I'm- I'd say you're qualified. Right, right. <laughs> But it's funny, like you, it took me a while to actually like believe that and think that myself. I had to have a total mindset shift, but now I do. Now, now I'm in it. Now I'm more confident than ever. So then I just started kind of putting it out into the universe, right? Just started the company, started putting things out on social media, and then people started to see it. And they're like, yeah, this dude looks super qualified. We should probably get him to come teach us some things. And that's kind of how it started. If I had a conference, I would absolutely have you be one of the speakers because I meant it when I said you're top four, top five most interesting human beings that I've, and and it's not even like you have some crazy wild story. It's just the wealth of experience and the education. You combine those things. And then uh, the book title, what's the title of the book? Yeah, it's, uh, it's called Police Leadership Redefined, The EQ Advantage, and it's all about emotional intelligence. So that's like my, that's the thing that I love the most right now about leadership is this concept of emotional intelligence. And I'll just give you a quick kind of 
two minute explanation of emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence, there's four pillars to it. And it is self-awareness, which is you as an individual knowing yourself, which my God, I could, I could give you an eight hour presentation on that in and of itself. But the next part is self-management, knowing how to manage your emotions. The third part is social awareness. Kind of like I said, like when you're an investigator and you're interviewing people, are you able to pick up on other people's emotions? Are you able to pick up and relate to other people, have empathy and those kind of things? And then the final part is relationship management. And to me, that framework that I just laid out, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and managing your own relationships, any situation that you give me in leadership, I can apply it to one of those pillars. And that's all emotional intelligence. So when you find somebody who is like a really great leader, 99 times out of 100, it's because they have a high level of emotional intelligence. Mm. That's really good. I definitely want to look into that. I uh, I told you I never took any promotional exams. Uh, my plan when I was on midnights was to go back to the academy, be academy instructor for uh, a few years, and then study to make supervisor. But then I got on the investigative track where uh, I went into a community unit and then I wanted to go to narcotics and become a detective that way. And then maybe work in some different units, but my career didn't go that way. It went, <laughs> <laughs> it, it went, Hey, you're getting promoted and you're going to special victims. And I said, Oh, okay. So <laughs> I was there for close to three years. And then I went to the general detective squad um, where I've been. And my story is all about, being burnt out and uh you know i call it death by a thousand cuts because uh you get so many grand larcenies of cars and credit cards that uh you know it does eventually burn you out and i told my supervisor i'm like i need some change <laughs> i wanted to go to the uh administrative spot i i would do anything different and um eventually you have to decide, well, if they're not going to move you, then how are you going to reinvent yourself? What are you going to do? You have to take responsibility for your own career at some point. So I started the podcast and I started speaking myself also. Your story of how you got the conference is pretty amazing. Uh, the one that you're doing in October, you told me you picked up the phone and you just cold called, which yeah. so, so few people, so few people do. I think all, uh, no, so I signed, I signed a contract with the state of Virginia. So I have a few different presentations I'm doing with them, but that came through the grapevine. Like some people heard about me and then somebody told somebody about me and then, you know, and then somebody from Virginia reached out to me, but all the other ones that I'm doing. Uh, so I have one, I have three different events in May that I'm doing. All of them were cold, were cold calls. I just like reach out to people. And uh, you'd be surprised how well that works. And I think, I think it's because not many people do it. So when you get somebody that actually, for lack of a better term, like has the guts to actually do that, I think people see like, oh, okay, this dude's pretty passionate about this. And, yeah. uh, and again, it comes back to like this investigative background, like having the ability to interview people. Uh, I just can talk to people on the phone and I can bullshit with people. And then before you know it, they're like, would you like to talk at our conference? I'm like, I would love to. 
<laughs> and they do that without seeing you speak previously. So I have four or five videos on YouTube right now. So I have a podcast. It's called The Science of Self-Development. I don't do it that often, but I, I made sure to have some videos of me, like 10, 15 minute clips of me actually talking and, and presenting. But that was like a strategic move for exactly what you just said, because it's one thing to hear somebody talk on the phone. But then if you can actually see me giving a presentation on something, you know, and I have a decent flow. Um, right. And actually, you know, what? so it's funny you bring that up to add to all the other things that I do. But I started writing articles for Police One, right? And I did that a while ago. I've just always really enjoyed writing. And again, that was just a shot in the dark. I wrote an article. I sent it to Police One. Didn't hear anything for about five months. And I was like, well, I guess I'll never be published. And then like five months goes by and they reach out and they say, hey, we love your article. So then I developed a relationship with them. So I've written four or five different times for them. So then again, I kind of did the cold call thing. So they were going to publish one of my articles, right? And I had done a video basically of that article. It was on paradigms and habits and, and how to build good habits in your life, right? So then I reached out to them and I was kind of nervous about doing it, but I was like, ah, let me take a chance. So I reached out to them and I said, hey, you guys are gonna publish this article that I wrote. I actually have a video that goes along with it. Would you be willing to put that video in the article when you put it online? So again, like a, like a month goes by and I didn't hear anything. So I'm like, oh shit, like they're not going to do it. Well, then they come back and they're like, dude, this is awesome. Well, then like a week goes by and they're like, hey, would you be willing to do a 10 part video series for us on leadership? But all of that happened because they actually got to see me present and do it, right? It wasn't just like me talking to them saying like, hey, I do these presentations and I'm really good. It's like, well, here's the evidence that you can look at for yourself. Right. But also going back to what you talked about earlier, I don't know how many people just reach out to them and say like, hey, would you be willing to do this? And just take a shot in the dark. Who knows? What's the worst that can happen? Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people are afraid of rejection. We have a mutual friend in Monty Bynum. I saw he, he, uh, he posted about you. So how did you link up with him? So Monty, I don't actually remember... Maybe Monty reached out to me. Maybe I reached out to him. I don't remember the exact way it happened, but he used to work for our police department. Okay. So where I work, Monty used to work, you know, 20 years ago, however long it was. Right. Uh, I never met him on the job. But everything that I'm talking about with the mindset stuff, Yes. Uh, Monty and Amy, who is also part of his company, The Wealthy Servant, they're the ones that kind of like grabbed me by the shoulders and they were like, Hey, dummy, like you have all the, all the things you could ever need. You, you just have to change your mindset. Right. And that was a big stepping stone for me to be like, okay, like I have the resume. Now it's just a matter of me being confident with that. But Monty, he's a wizard with that stuff because, you know, he's been in, he's been a first responder for almost as long as I've been alive. And been in business for a and long been time. a businessman. Oh. Right. And that's, you know what? And I did a video for Police One today, and I kind of talked about this, and, and Monty's really the one that turned me on to this. Like, stop asking yourself how you can do things and just ask who can help you, right? Yes. So Monty's a businessman. That dude knows how to make money. 
and he knows how to really get the most out of other people. I don't know how to do that. Uh, I'm fairly good at speaking. I know how to investigate things like I have that. I don't know how to make it into a business. I don't know how to make money off of it. And Monty does. So I partner with him and I've been working with him ever since. That's incredible. That's awesome. Uh, I love our conversations. I, I talk with him about once a week and um, I definitely will be partnering with him in some capacity as well. Um, I definitely tell people to look into what he's doing because he's a shining example of creating a training company around whatever it is that your skill is. Like, I believe your training company could be worth a million dollars a month easily. Uh, you know, if you put the right pieces in place and you continue to speak and market yourself, uh, the word's going to get out. Mm -hmm. it, it just, it has to, you know, you're putting out good content out into the world and people are going to start to write, like the next time I have a conversation with a, um, with a meeting planner about a conference, I'm going to say, I know a PhD who happens to be in law enforcement. I, I'm going to say, you need to connect with this guy, you know? Yeah. And, and that's what happens is people start to know who you are and word starts to spread and your brand becomes a, you know, multi-million dollar brand all of a sudden like oh they call it an overnight success over you know 20 years <laughs> yeah, i was gonna say it's not gonna i appreciate that is very nice of you to say i do appreciate that and it's not gonna be overnight i can tell you that but uh but i've definitely had like positive reinforcement right for some of these things like stepping outside of my comfort zone and yeah listen i've definitely certainly had failures like uh, like i tried to do things a certain way like well that didn't work out okay well we're just gonna try a different it's way all it's all an experiment right yes it's all an experiment. Yeah, absolutely. And, but it's amazing to me how much of it just comes down to that mindset. You know what I mean? Like there are people who, and I'm just going to say it, their resumes are far less impressive than mine, but because they have the confidence and because they have the mindset, they're crushing it. Right. Yep. And I applaud them. And I think that's incredible. Like good for them. That's really awesome. Now it's my turn to go do that. Right. But the only difference is the mindset. That's it. Who were some of your mentors outside of law enforcement, like um, in, in terms of mindset? Because one of my early mentors was Bob Proctor. You had mentioned uh, Paradigms. Yeah. And, uh, I went to see him in Toronto and I became one of his consultants. I, I purchased like every program he had. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, who, Bob who, no, Bob, yeah. Bob Proctor. So Bob Proctor and Earl Nightingale. Those yeah. are my two top tier um bob proctor's book uh change your paradigm change your life was like uh, that was a big shift for me for me and... his book uh you were born rich was mm. a big shift for me i read that one and it's not about making money it's about using your fac faculties that you're you're born with and uh i always recommend people to read that book because he breaks it down so simply. I, I just, you know, I grew up on Bob Proctor. Yeah. Yeah. I just got introduced to Bob Proctor, I would say a few years ago. But um, yeah, man, just, and again, he's all about mindset, right? He's all about, you can literally do whatever you want to do. And I know that sounds very corny, but it's the truth. As long as you are willing to kind of open yourself up and try new things, man, it's just, now that I've, I, I almost feel like I was stuck in the matrix for so many years, right? 
And now I've kind of like seen the other side and I'm like just on, on the surface. Like there's a whole nother side that I haven't even seen yet, but I almost look back at where I used to be and how a lot of people are just stuck in this mindset, this like limiting non-growth mindset. And I'm just like, Oh man, you're really missing it. Like you could do so much more. There's so many people who believe that they don't have any other skills other than their career that they've been attached to. They, they've taken on this identity of, of a fireman or of a police officer. And that's that, that they feel like that's all that they know. So how do you suggest someone start to, uh, shift away from that mindset or, or just start to go in a direction of growth. How do you suggest? Yeah. Start reading books. There's people out there who will tell you exactly how to do it. And you and I have both told the audience, like Bob Proctor is a phenomenal way to start that. Uh, Bob Proctor does a great job at just breaking things down in very simple terms, relating it to your life. I, every book I've ever read by Bob Proctor, I feel like he wrote it for me. Right. And that's why he was so successful in doing those things. I had this conversation with Monty, and this is when him and I first started working together. But if you look at first responders, you nailed it in the sense of many, most first responders identify with whatever that position is. I am a police officer, I'm a firefighter, I'm a paramedic, whatever. And they really don't think that they're anything more than that. They just think that, oh, I can't do that. I'm just a cop or whatever. But take a second to think about the skills and attributes that a police officer has. Police officers make split-second decisions in rapidly evolving situations. And most of the time, like the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of the time, they're 100% right and they do it awesome. Natural Whereas, problem solvers. Yes, yes, correct. Police officers and really just first responders in general are phenomenal problem solvers but they don't even realize that that's this skill that they've been developing over years. Well, guess what everybody else in their life wants? They want somebody to fix their problems. And that could be the business world. Like my cousin works in the finance world, right? And they have a lot more time to think about decisions. And what I'm noticing now is they like to have military and police personnel come in and talk about leadership because Military and police, you got to make decisions very quickly with very little information, and you better be right, because especially now, if you're not, you're going to be in trouble. So it's just identifying. And I think one of the things that I did, and this is what Monty told me to do, is just write down, like, what are the things you do on a daily basis? Like, just seriously, just write it down. And if you're a police officer, like, write down all the calls for service you went to that day. What are all the different problems you had to solve? You know, you had to drive really fast to a scene. You had to render first aid to somebody. And then if you take a step back and look at that, you're like, oh, shit. Like, I'm, this is pretty incredible that I did this all in one day. And then that's just, you know, you got to educate yourself, though, too. Because, man, I'm telling you, if I could really, one piece of information, read Bob Proctor's books. It's the truth. I mean, that dude has kind of, like, solved the puzzle for a lot of people. He was uh, my first mentor that told me to write a book he said you have a book inside of you so i actually took him literally went home and i did it the hard way i sat down and wrote one page a day i would go and 
they say if you copy everything from one book, you're plagiarizing, right? But if you copy from a dozen books, you're doing research. <laughs> Have you ever heard that quote before? No, I haven't, but that's really good. Yeah, so obviously anyone with a PhD or a master's, they are very familiar with doing research from multiple yeah. books, right? And you just have to quote your sources, right? So mm -hmm. I would just go and I would have like my six or seven favorite books and I would go through and look, see what I highlighted. And then I would write that, that piece down that I highlighted and then I would continue on it and write my own thoughts from that. Mm. And that was my method. And I, I could spit out a page or two a day and over the course of, I think it took me like nine months, I was able to complete my first book. That's the really, really difficult way. Do you know the easy way now? No, tell me, what's the easy way? I'm going to tell you the easy way. And I, I helped someone from Maryland with this same concept. So this is the easy way for anyone that's listening that wants to do their book. You have someone interview you like this. So you first, you fill out an outline, you fill out your big idea. Uh, you, you worry about titles later but you do your, your 10 points. Okay. This is, and you start off with your story. This is my story. It depends if you're writing a nonfiction book or if you're writing a fiction book, right? Right. But for a nonfiction book, you write, this is my story. This is the lesson that I want to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not partake. This is the lesson that I want to give. What's the, what's a better word than give? I don't know. Maybe. I would just say a lesson learned for the book. I don't know. Yeah. Lesson learned. So each, each chapter you do a lesson learned and a story about that, that lesson. And you have someone interview you about that. You have that interview then transcribed. Mm. And then you send that to an editor to make it into a more readable format. You, you say, Hey, I want this in a more readable format closer to, you know, a traditional book. And you don't, you don't read the transcription at all because the transcription just reads like an interview and it just sounds hard. It doesn't sound like a book, yeah. but you send it to an editor, then you get it back and then you make your first revisions on it. And you say, okay, well, I think I want to expand on this or I want to change this. This doesn't really sound as educated as I want to sound on the topic. So you may want to do a little more research on that particular chapter and then add, oh yeah, there was a study on this and I want to include this study. And then it's much less writing. You can get that done in a weekend versus nine months. That's the fast way. That's a, that's a, that's awesome. No, seriously. Like I'm, I can't wait to go back and listen to this conversation because I'm going to do that for my next. My next yeah, I will, uh, I'll send that. I'll send that to you in a uh, text message and I'll yeah. send you like um, some other resources that I have and you can, you can get this done especially with amazon um kindle publishing you can get yeah, this that's what I did. Yep. for under a few thousand dollars and you can have it your second third and fourth book knocked out in a couple of probably a couple of a couple of months instead of you know nine months you could probably do it in 60 days 30 30 to 60 days that's the really really fast way i've seen programs that say a book in a weekend and i know exactly how they're doing it because i've talked to other consultants slash coaches who basically broke it down and told me this is how you knock out a book really really fast so writing the book is now the easy part the harder part is marketing the book you have to figure out how are you going to let people know that you wrote 
this book and how you're going to get it out. Do you have an email list yet? I don't. So actually, so here's what um, I have. My website's being re redone right now. So I made my own website. This is a great example of stop asking how to do things and just ask who. So um, my current website, I made it on Wix. Uh, it's fine, but it looks like I made the website. Yeah. <laughs> and so I got hooked up with a web designer. They're currently working on that right now. And I will have basically every speaking presentation I go to in the future. When that speaking presentation is over, there will be a QR code that they can scan to get a free download of something, uh, give a review of my presentation, something, something, and then I'll capture their emails uh, through that. Have you, heard, have you heard of Talkadot? I have not, no. So that's what they have. They have a QR code that, um, and I think the initial account is free. And if you upgrade, there's more features, right. but uh, they have this QR code that allows people to give feedback instantly. And you can also have your free download on that as well. So it's called talk a dot a D O T. Okay. Cool. Um, highly recommend that. And there was something else that you just mentioned. Oh, what's your website? What is it? So um, th by the time this comes out, it'll be a uh, read training solutions.com read training and what was the old one i'm just curious it was, it was read solutions llc.com oh okay okay yeah, right, yeah cool yeah. so then yeah, i even like even just that little thing like my company used to be called read solutions well now it's called read training solutions yes uh so that was like a small just kind of error on my part like i never even thought about that from a business standpoint like i just thought like oh this will be read solutions and then i started working with some people and they're like solutions for what like right. what? <laughs> yeah. So then I had to refile my paperwork with the state and make it read training solutions now. But, uh, you know, I enjoy this process. It's all part yes. of the process. Like I'm just learning as I go. Yes. I'm going to make those little mistakes and it is what it is. I love that you're building the plane as you're flying. I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And even like, so even with these speaking presentations, right? Like I'm going to, I reject this, that I'll mess up like a major part of it, but I will probably give a two hour presentation. And then the seventh time I give that presentation, it'll be so different than the first time I gave it because I'm just going to keep building and building and building. How long do you practice? How long do you practice before? Like, say you had something um, in a month from now, how, how many reps are you doing? How, how do you practice? What's your process? Yeah, every day. <laughs> every day. Um, Pretty much all the way my brain works, I break everything down into three or four sections for everything, right? So if I'm giving a two-hour presentation, that presentation will have four key parts to it. Uh, each one of those parts will be about 30 minutes long, give or take, depending on how long like breaks will be for the presentation. But every single day, I am saying out loud that at least one section of that presentation. Uh, if it's and then as things get closer, I do the whole thing, like the whole shebang. You know what I mean? I just do it over and over and over again. I and love I hearing other people's process because I learn. Yeah. I, I learn also. Yeah. I'm a big repetition person. I've always been, I'll even give you another example. Like I, I'm in the middle of a promotional process right now for Lieutenant. So I know I have my oral board coming up. The date hasn't been picked yet. It's going to be in the next month or so. 
but every time I'm in the car, I'm saying things out loud. Like I have a canned three to five minute thing that I want to say, right? But that thing's just like smooth. I mean, so no matter what stressful situation you put me in, it doesn't matter because I've said this thing 200 times already. And now it's just part of my whatever. So that's why I do that with the, so this thing I'm doing in Virginia, right? It's the, it's going to be the first week in June. And I think they said they're going to have me present in Richmond. Then I'm going to drive to Lynchburg and then I'm going to drive to Virginia beach and give an eight hour presentation each one of those days. Well, that's a lot of like moving parts. There's a lot of things going on there. So the last thing that I want to have to worry about is the presentation. That presentation is going to be so locked down airtight that that's, I'm not even thinking about that. You could even take away all my visual elements, like God forbid something happened, right? And the projector wasn't working and the, they're like, oh, this doesn't work. I'm like, okay, whatever, we'll roll with it. But that comes through repetition, that comes through practice. Did you ever uh, record it and listen to it or, or do you just continue to say it out loud? So I record it and listen to it as well. So like right now I'm filming videos for that Police One video series, right? So like this morning before we recorded this, I recorded a video and I, I had rehearsed it in the days prior, right? So days leading up, and these are short videos. These are five to seven minutes, somewhere around there. So I had been saying it out loud. I then go to record it. I record the session. It was like six minutes long. And then I watch it over again, right? And I just pick up on little things. I'm like, ah, I want to tighten this up. Ah, I want to tighten that up. And then I'll just do it again. And I'll do it again. I'm a little neurotic with it, to be honest with you. Potentially to a fault. But I really like to just nail those things down. So listening to it is definitely, uh, that's like the next level, I think. Say it out loud. I think, honestly, dude, where a lot of people go wrong is they don't say it out loud. Mm. They just think about it in their head. Or read it. Or read it. But there's a big difference between actually verbalizing it. There's some mechanism in the brain. I don't know what it is, but uh, you actually saying it out loud is a whole nother game changer. And then if you record yourself, and then you can, when you ride around your car, play it back to yourself and then just listen to it. I love that idea. That's one of my methods. I listen to myself a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite story that you tell during these trainings or like with family? Um, I wouldn't say a favorite story. I have a, I'll, yeah, you want to hear a funny story about my daughter? I'll tell you a story. Sure. <laughs> So this is the story that I give to provide the framework for emotional intelligence, all right? So I have two kids. Uh, my daughter is now almost five. My son is almost three. So this is about a year ago. So about a year ago, my daughter's three and my son's like 18 months old. He's about two. So we're in the living room and my wife is cooking dinner in the kitchen. All right, so we're watching Paw Patrol. That's probably like before or after your time, but Paw Patrol was really big in my house. I know what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so we're watching Paw Patrol, and then my wife says, hey, dinner's ready. Okay, well, that's my cue as the dad to turn the TV off. Right. Right, so I get the remote. My son is walking by me because he knows the drill, like he's going to go to the dinner table. So then I extend my arm, um, have the remote, and I'm about to turn it off. My beautiful daughter, she gets up from the couch, looks at me, and says, drop it, fucker. 
So in that moment, I am frozen in time. I have this wave of emotions come over me. So this is emotional intelligence because first I have to be self-aware. First, right. I have to think to myself like, well, I'm really proud because now I know that my daughter is not going to take any bullshit from anybody. Right. But number two, where did she hear this? Because I don't say that word. I mean, I say the F word from time to time, but I've never used it in that context. Right. So next is self-management. Like, I want to laugh, dude. I want to laugh so bad in that situation, right. but I know I can't. I also want to look behind me at my wife and say, what's going on when I'm not here? Like, Are you, say are you saying this? Who's saying this? <laughs> so then the next part is social awareness. I have my son who is totally frozen in time because he doesn't know what has happened, but he knows something has happened and dad's not very happy right now. And then the last part is relationship management. Like I know that how I handle this situation will forever change my relationship with my daughter, my son, my wife, the whole thing. So I just look at my daughter and I totally ignored it. I totally ignored it. I just turned the TV off, acted like it didn't happen. And then I went and sat down. And my wife and I were just looking at each other like, did that really just happen? But that, my friend, is that's emotional intelligence. And all of that, that whole thing happened in probably 1.2 seconds. Like it's a split second when that happens. So that that's is really, an that's incredible story. And I hope that if it's not in your current book, I hope it's in your next book. It'll be in my next one. It's not uh, it's not in the last one. Yeah, that is an incredible story, whether it's uh, told orally or whether it's written. That is just a great story. And uh, I appreciate you sharing that one with my audience. Um, I'm going to respect your time because I know we're getting to uh, that top of the hour now not the top but half half hour yeah. um my last five questions for you which i ask everyone is what's your definition of a hero because people like to uh throw out that term for first responders and for military and for nurses but i like to ask everyone i i promise that i won't call you that but i like to ask my guest what is your definition of a hero yeah somebody who's selfless somebody who takes care of other people before taking care of themselves I mean, I think that's for me, that's that's a that's a true hero, somebody who's truly selfless. When your stress is starting to reach its high point, because uh, you were in homicide and also going to school at the same time, uh, how did you save yourself from reaching that breaking point? How did you show yourself love, especially during those those emotionally high times? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, exercise, number one. So I found long distance, like endurance events to be, for me and my personality, my body, whatever you want to call it, like long distance running is my thing. That's my therapy. I go for long distance runs. I don't listen to music. It's just me out on the road and I just go do that. If I didn't have that, I'd be in an insane asylum. I really would. Like, I have to have that. And now during the homicide time, I wasn't doing jujitsu, but I, I recently got back into jujitsu. I've been doing that for about two and a half years now. That's another one. So any type of strenuous physical activity, I think is an absolute non-negotiable if you're going to mitigate your stress. I could not agree more. I tell every single person that when I was under the most amount of stress, I had ever experienced on the job and at home at the same simultaneous 
time, I was saved by two things, going to a therapist and also saved by the gym because I would work out like if I had a particularly stressful day, then I would work out like a maniac and I would feel a little bit better. It's almost a guaranteed. Um, I know you're a you're you're a uh, teacher. You're also a speaker. Would you ever consider being a coach as well and coaching people? Yeah, absolutely. And that's like the other half of Reed Training Solutions. Like the bulk of what I do is presentations, but the next level of that. And I, I do do coaching in the sense of when I come to, say, a police organization, right, and I give a training, what I say is, listen, in three days, most of you are going to forget this information. In right. seven days, you're not even going to remember my name. Right. So, but what the only thing I can do, and when I come give presentations, like I'm pretty high energy, I have a lot of fun things we do. The only thing I can do in that instance is just light a spark. All I can do is spark. What I can do then is come back and I have this other program I do where it's a four-month development program, it's four-month coaching to really like hone in on those things. And then I can also do one-on-one coaching. Um, I love coaching. That's like, the presentations are great, but when I can work with somebody one-on-one, which I have done, and actually see that change, just like Monty did with me, right? Just like Monty and Amy, when they work with me, they change my mindset. Um, I love being able to do that with other people. So yeah, for sure. What's your greatest power today? And, uh, this is my fourth and penultimate question. What's your, uh, your best ability? I know it's a tough question for some people. Perseverance. Perseverance. Yeah. So for me, I went through an exercise where I wrote out my vision, right? I got very clear on what my vision is. And that took me a while, but I physically wrote it out. My wife and I did this separately. We wrote out our visions. We came together. Luckily, they're very much aligned. But I know what my vision is. And, you know, it gets tweaked from time to time here and there. But I don't do things based on my emotions. I just know the path. And maybe I don't feel like doing it, but I know I can persevere through things. I've done a lot of difficult things. And again, this comes back to physical fitness as well. Like I've done an Ironman triathlon. Uh, a lot of people will think that's insane. Yeah. And that's if you don't incredible. know what, it, yeah, if you don't know what an Ironman is, it's 2.4 mile swim. It's 112 miles on the bike and then a marathon, which is 26.2 miles. So the training that that takes to get to that point where your body can go through that. Well, that's how my mind is as well. And I think that's 100% my greatest like trait, characteristic, whatever you want to call it is, uh, I can really endure quite a bit and persevere. When you're training for an Ironman, this is mm-hmm. off topic, but when you're training for that, what is a typical long run for you? Is that like, cause I know people don't do a full marathon to train for a full marathon. Most people will do about 18, 15, 18 miles, right? Yeah. 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 So like when I was doing the Ironman stuff, um, like a long workout would be, I'm trying to, it would be like on a Saturday, right? So it'd be like 85 miles on the bike and then a 10 mile run. That would be like a big day, right? That'd be like a big training day. Now the, so the most I ever did in one training day, it was a hundred miles on the bike. 
And then I think it was a 12 mile run. I think that was like my big, and that was probably four to five weeks out from the actual event. And that's and just prepping long, your body. How long did that take to do a hundred miles and then a 10 mile run? Uh, quite a bit. I think that was probably upwards of like 11 hours, probably somewhere around there, if not a little bit more. So when I did the Ironman, I did the Ironman and it was not a fast time. I think it took me 14 hours. Yeah. So, but the swim, the swim's the easy part. The swim, yes. it's 2.4 miles. It sounds like a lot, which it is, but that only took me an hour and 15 minutes, somewhere around there. And it's also so the every, taxing on the body because you're going through water. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The The most mentally draining is the bike. To this day, I think I have PTSD about riding a bike. It's just like, it's it's a long time to be on the bike. And there's so many elements to it with hydration and nutrition and like going to the bathroom and like all these yes. different things that you have to learn how to do. And then not to mention you go ride 112 miles. And then you got to go run a marathon. Yeah. Oh my God. God bless you, man. That is, that is an incredible feat that uh, I don't ever aspire to, <laughs> but I applaud anyone that has ever done that. That's just incredible. And uh, my last question for you, just for fun, if you had a comic book superpower, what would it be and why? Comic book superpower. I think just some kind of like super strength to where I could just pick stuff up and throw it. I don't know why that would be a really cool thing to do. You know why? Because my daughter thinks that like I'm the strongest person that's ever lived in the entire world. <laughs> and uh, I think it would be cool to actually be able to just do superhuman things like that. Wouldn't it be cool if you could not look like you were that strong, yeah. but you actually like you could just pick up a, a car by its fender yes. with two fingers right and just hold it above your head wouldn't it wouldn't that be amazing yeah i wouldn't have to do any of these speaking engagements i wouldn't have to do any of this stuff i would just go around and just put on a show that's incredible gene i can't wait to uh meet you in person and uh do this again i whenever i have a great interview i always tell people that uh we'll do part two um very soon Probably in the next uh, six months or so. I know you have a lot going on and I really, really appreciate the time. And I appreciate your service to our country and to your local town that you provide. Uh, you're an incredible human. And I love to give people their roses while they're still alive. And, and, and I really mean it sincerely that uh, you are one of the most interesting men alive <laughs> that like you definitely check a lot of boxes of like being interesting and being a cool dude. And I can't wait to shake your hand. Thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. All right, family. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Everyone I interview, I've chosen for you guys because of this story. And I hope that you get some value every single time. If you did get value or just, just simply enjoyed the episode, please share the episode with someone that you know. If you know of a guest, a frontline hero that has an amazing story, something uplifting or a positive message, hit me up in the contact form of www.davidleith.com or DM me at Instagram at davidleith1. 
Subscribe to the show because I have some really phenomenal guests coming up in the next few weeks that you definitely don't want to miss. All right, one.